good to see you guys and some new faces so i feel like i'm behind i need to catch up and meet some of the newer guys <clears throat> go ahead and open your bibles to first timothy chapter one if you've been in build numerous times which many of you have then uh, you'll notice that this is a new lesson in the lineup so we're switching it up a little bit this year and uh, expanding a lot of the lessons that we've repeated over the few years, uh, past few years. All right, let me uh, just open this up in prayer and uh, then we'll jump in. God, thank you so much for your word, even the time that you've given us to be together, to be together before your word, to have our own hearts and lives transformed, uh, all for your glory, God, not even for our comfort. We know that godly living is better by far. We avoid trouble and all kinds of ruin when we put aside our own thinking when we submit to yours instead. But the pursuit of godliness, we know can't even be for those reasons ultimately, but all because you are worthy to receive all of our obedience and worship and adoration. And even as we sit with your word open on our laps this morning, I pray that we would be reminded of these things, that we would be reminded of the superiority and sufficiency of your truth to sanctify our lives, that where there may be errors in our thinking, that you would correct us, where there may be wrong desires, that you would fix those and change them, uh, reveal our, our sin to us. There was a, a time when we didn't want to see our sin, when we didn't want to know about our sin, when we loved our sin, and you having transformed us, God, we uh, want to see our sin now so that we can put it away and be wholly devoted to you, be useful uh, to our Lord. And so we pray that this morning would be another uh, small step in that direction to Christ's likeness and that we'd be useful men at home for our wives, children, roommates, friends, and that you would be glorified by our continual pursuit of you and, and transformation into the image of your son. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this morning's lesson is called Your Heart and Your Doctrine your heart and your doctrine. And what we have is five strategies for guarding your heart and your doctrine. Five strategies for guarding your heart and your doctrine. From cover to cover in your Bible, the heart is central. The heart is central. It is the center of your own life. Uh, it is the control center of all that you are. So what you think, what you do, 
what you believe, how you feel, all of that comes from what scripture calls the heart. Uh, as you've certainly heard before, Proverbs 4.23, Solomon charges uh, really his son, but by extension the whole nation of Israel and all readers, to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Uh, what happens in your life, though not exclusively the result of what's inside you, is primarily the result of what's inside you, right? There are events that you have no control over, things that just happen all the time, uh, but what your, how your life looks, the shape that your life takes, the choices you make, those things ultimately come from your own heart. And so this morning, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 7, and we're going to see instructions that Paul gives uh, actually to false teachers. Um, and so this morning, all the men will be receiving instructions for false teachers. Not that there are any false teachers among us, hopefully not, but these instructions are useful to the entire church. As you think about Paul writing a letter to Timothy that is God-breathed, the Spirit moved on Paul to write God's words from himself, from Paul, to Timothy. And you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul's introduction is a little bit formal for a letter to a personal friend. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child, in, in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Timothy had traveled with Paul. He was well aware of Paul the man. He was well aware of Paul the apostle, Paul the teacher and preacher. He had been with Paul for years being discipled by the apostle. And so to receive a letter this late in Paul's life, probably not too long before he died, he introduces himself as Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and that is according to the command of Christ Jesus. That is really formal for an introduction uh, from a personal friend. Uh, the idea here is that Paul doesn't intend this letter to remain with Timothy alone, but he's writing for the sake of the entire church. For Timothy... For Timothy to have received this personal letter from Paul, uh, the reason that Paul's writing to Timothy is specifically so that Timothy can shepherd the church in Ephesus, all the various members of the church, to practice piety produce love. And he needs to do that with confidence. Uh, that's why in First and Second Timothy, you hear Paul uh, numerous times encouraging him to not be fearful, uh, to not let anyone despise his youth. He acknowledges some weaknesses in Timothy, but in both letters, encourages him with words that would help him have confidence as a young shepherd. 
And so since Paul is writing this for the sake of Timothy confidently shepherding the various members of the church, this letter, uh, or a part of what this letter would accomplish in helping Timothy to gain confidence, is that it would be read before the entire church, and everybody would be well aware of what Paul told Timothy. So when Paul gives Timothy specifically instructions for false teachers all throughout chapter 1, really, everybody in the church would have been well aware. This is what Paul has to say to the men who are teaching error among us. When he gave instructions to all the men specifically in chapter 2, everybody would have been well aware. Here is what the men are supposed to be doing in the church. When he says to women in chapter 2, here's what God has for you as members of God's household. Everybody would have been well aware. Here's what the women are supposed to be doing. And on and on and on as he addresses elders, deacons, those who have walked away from the faith, when he spends significant time telling Timothy, reminding Timothy what his job is as a shepherd in chapter 4, everybody would have been well aware of what Timothy's job was as a shepherd. Chapter 5, with widows, 5 again, instruction concerning elders, and then in 6, he even gives instructions again to Timothy and to the rich. And so this would have bolstered Timothy's confidence, knowing exactly, uh, being reminded exactly what Paul has for him as an apostle of Christ. And since the rest of the church is hearing it, Timothy can confidently step forward in his role as a shepherd because everybody's well aware of what Timothy is supposed to be doing, supposed to be teaching the various members. In chapter 1, where we find ourselves, the very uh, first thing that Paul has to say to Timothy is what to do with the people who are teaching error in Ephesus. And you'll even notice, even though this is where he goes first, if you just flip over to chapter 2, verse 1, <clears throat> Paul, that uh, first phrase, first of all, well, we're a chapter in, and he says, first of all. So it's like, now we're getting down to uh, the real instructions. But he's been already speaking for a chapter. The reason that I think Paul is, is getting to the first of all instructions, uh, as he actually highlights the centrality of prayer in body life, not only is prayer something that ought to take priority in this uh, war that's being waged for souls, right? Bringing in unbelievers, rescuing unbelievers from enslavement to Satan and sin, maintaining the faith of those who are a part of God's household so that they continue to walk well and persevere to the end, right? This is a fight that's happening. So prayer is sort of a uh, first of all, a primary weapon is where Paul goes. But the reason he spends all of this time talking to Timothy about false teachers and what to do with them is because if you don't address the false teaching happening in the church, then nothing else you do matters. It doesn't matter what's coming from the pulpit on a Sunday, how sound that is. It doesn't matter how solid your biblical counseling ministry is 
it doesn't matter how strong the men and women are who are discipling others if false teaching continues to infiltrate the rest of body life then it ruins all else that's good you'll notice in what we're about to read that Paul does not consign the false teachers to a small few person Bible study and for good reason as you read through the book uh, false teaching it provide the stepping stones to apostasy so it's not good enough to just restrict them to have a, a small voice in the church to have uh, a, a minute audience in the church Paul addresses what to do with the men teaching error first and then that provides a suitable platform for all the instruction that follows so let's follow along as I read verses 3 to 7 <clears throat> and we'll talk about why these instructions for false teachers are instructive for us today. verse 3 as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions Paul's instruction for false teachers really does provide helpful instruction for us for keeping or guarding our heart and doctrine the first thing Paul tells these uh, tells Timothy with these false teachers is to instruct them Right? I left you in Ephesus as I needed to go to Macedonia, Paul says. And here's your job in Ephesus. The first thing he tells him is instruct certain men. The certain men obviously being the ones that are teaching the other stuff. This is uh, actually gracious. Just thinking about Paul says to instruct them. Right, Step into the lives of the men in the church who are teaching error don't castigate them yell at them kick them out immediately Paul realizes that there are issues that need to be dealt with and the first thing that Paul says to do then is to instruct them that's actually very gracious the men who are uh, upsetting the faith of some and teaching what endangers God's children they need like the rest of the church to be instructed now certainly how they would have responded to that instruction would have determined what happened after the instruction was given you'll see in uh, if you skip down to verse uh, 19 <clears throat> Paul tells him as he's fighting this good fight he should do so, verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected 
and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So the men who refused the instruction coming from the apostle and pastors in Ephesus would have been eventually church disciplined and handed over to Satan. But the first step we see here is to instruct them. Instruct them, first of all, and this is number one on your outline, to abandon other teaching. Abandon other teaching. That's the gist of Paul's initial instructions. Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. <clears throat> now, strange doctrine can be misleading. You might think, yeah, don't let them uh, teach really bizarre things in the church. Like uh, today, you know, don't let them teach that the earth is flat. Or don't let them teach some new, unheard of teaching. That's not actually what's in, what he has in mind here. But what he has in mind is, uh, if it were more literally translated, it would just be other teaching. <clears throat> other teaching. Things that are uh, not anti-biblical. Things that are maybe not even unbiblical, but just things that aren't biblical. They aren't in scripture. There's something that the Bible doesn't teach. Maybe it's a question that scripture doesn't address specifically. But the idea is don't teach other stuff. Don't teach other doctrine, other teaching. They need to abandon that other teaching and stop. The person who has a an appetite, who cultivates an appetite for things that are ah-biblical, will find themselves eventually uh, wandering into what's unbiblical and that as we're going to see as we keep going is going to have its effect on your life we have to develop a craving an insatiable appetite not for the white space in your bible what's between the lines but the actual words of god do you have an appetite do you have a craving for what is explicitly written in scripture your life and your faith, your perseverance in the faith, depend on you having that appetite only for what God has said. Uh, to find yourself with an appetite for something else actually embraces the notion that what God has said isn't sufficient. If you have a craving for what God didn't say or reading between the lines, then that's demonstrating a heart disposition toward God's word that doesn't trust it. It's not sufficient. I need other teaching in addition to what God has said alongside 
what God has said. That is unhealthy. And where you see that craving, you have to, what we call shepherd your heart, right? Don't let your heart lead you into wondering and, and growing in your curiosity about, about what's not written. You have to shepherd your heart, guard your heart to say, no, what God has said is sufficient. And so emphasize and focus on what God has said. So abandon other teaching. Second, he wants these men who are teaching error to ignore speculative theology. Ignore speculative theology. And these really go hand in hand. Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine, nor to pay attention. So they are giving their attention to some things. And it's myths and what he calls endless genealogies. Myths and endless genealogies. These are things that have been completely fabricated. They are not true. There's no way of verifying the stories, that's why they're called myths. They're called myths. These teachers have begun to play with these myths and actually give their attention to these things. It's sort of like when you're supposed to be studying, plumbing the depths of God's word during the week, maybe some of these men, that's what they get paid to do. Uh, if, if they're to you know, put it in, in, uh, in our context, they're supposed to be preparing to teach their small group what God said. And instead of giving their attention to the word and prepping, they're giving their attention to myths, things that aren't true, in preparation to teach it. That's sinful. That will ruin the church. Not only are they giving their attention to unverifiable fables, but endless genealogies. Endless genealogies. That is a, a good indication that these men weren't in the study, Bibles closed, reading other things that they just found interesting. They actually, because Paul mentions these endless genealogies, and because he goes on in verse 8, or even 7, they want to be teachers of not unbiblical stuff, but the law, right? It's not like they stand before the body and say, hey, instead of teaching scripture today, there's something else cool that I found during the week. You'll really appreciate this. That's not what they're doing. They do have their Bibles open. They're wanting to be teachers of the law. And in verse 8, Paul has to explain what is the use of the law. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Indication is that these teachers were not using the law lawfully. So they are in the Bible. They do have their Bibles open. But the myths and the endless genealogies is what they're going on and on about. And essentially pretending to be getting it from the actual words of God. You have genealogies all throughout uh, what is 
traditionally called the law, uh, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what Moses wrote. And you have several genealogies, Adam's genealogy in Genesis 5, Noah's genealogy in chapter 10. Uh, you have Ishmael and Isaac's genealogy, Jacob at the very end of Genesis. So these men had a lot of material to draw from. But in many of those, this, the point of, uh, of those genealogies being, missed, being listed is not the various obscure individuals who are named. Uh, the purpose is if you put yourself in the shoes of the audience receiving those things, receiving those genealogies, it was actually to aid Israel in understanding where they fit in in the world and why all of these various nations that are being listed, uh, why they're about to go fight them in Canaan, drive them out, and why there's continuing enmity. And it's instructive for us for the same purposes, right? To read those genealogies and see, here's where this nation came from. Uh, many names in the genealogies are actually the names of countries, uh, Egypt, put Canaan, right? So we know where those uh, people groups originated. But in Ephesus, the men would pick out some obscure character and go on and on about a story or what else came of this individual. And none of that did what Paul said the law was intended to do in verse 9. The law is for not righteous people. You're not talking to righteous people, people who are inherently good when you open up the Bible, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Whatever else, every sin that you commit, every sin that we struggle with is contrary to sound teaching. So when the Bible is opened up, it's there to purify our lives. The myths, the other teaching, the endless genealogies don't accomplish that. They do not sanctify the life. And so stop teaching it. Stop giving your attention to it, Paul says. John Calvin says, that Paul calls these gene genealogies endless because vain curiosity has no limit, but continually falls from labyrinth to labyrinth. You ever sat under those kinds of teachers? Hopefully not in the church, maybe in a college philosophy class. Uh, it's almost like the professor's job, the teacher's job, is just to introduce questions that even he himself doesn't have good answers for. And it just sends you on a tangent into further and further confusion. That's kind of the idea. The endless genealogies, there's no end to them. You never get more answers than you had when you arrived. It's just interesting, fun. Uh, it's intellectually titillating things to think about. If you sit under a Bible teacher who leaves you with that impression, run. And if it happens at Grace Bible Church, let us know. 
That does not sanctify the life. And so it has no place in the church. You'll notice in verse 4, these things give rise to mere speculation. What they produce in the life of the church, in those who hear what's being taught, these men who have not abandoned other teaching, these men who have not ignored speculative theology, it produces the very same thing in the church, speculation. Speculation. Uh, the church isn't getting real answers about how to please the Lord, how to think God's thoughts after him, how to know what God intends for them to know about all things biblical. God, man, the heart, work, the church, parenting, marriage. They're not getting real answers to those things, but they are left speculating. And there are churches who Sunday after Sunday, uh, one topical series after another topical series don't get real answers. There's a billboard on the uh, 202 right now. 30 days to, uh, to change your marriage. Um, chances are the people who are eager to hear that message, who actually need answers to how to improve their marriage, there's problems that aren't going to change in 30 days. There are convictions and habits that have been formed that can't be undone in 30 days. And so they're going expecting answers that they're absolutely not getting from God's word. Um, it's a trite, cute message to get people in the door and you don't get real answers to, uh, to the scriptures because the depth of God's word is not being put before the body. The clarity of what God's word actually says is not being heard by the hearers. They're left speculating, uh, perhaps thinking they're getting answers that they're not getting, and that's what's being produced in the church. Notice what's supposed to be happening. This is giving rise to mere speculation rather than what is the administration of God, which is by faith. In exchange for what they're supposed to be hearing, the administration of God, which is by faith, instead of what is supposed to be being accomplished in the church, the administration of God, which is by faith, what the body is getting instead is speculation. And if you just put these in the, in the scale together, you will see, one, completely devoid of any weight whatsoever, the speculation. And as we here look at what is the administration of God by faith, this has all the weight in the world. The administration of God, which is by faith. That's what's supposed to be being produced in the life of the church. The, the term administration of God, it just means the, the stewardship that's being given by God. Okay? The stewardship that's been given to the believer by God himself. What you have been given, essentially, to do in life. Your job as a Christian. What God has given you to do from the very moment you possessed faith. That is 
what Paul is referring to here, the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, what is the administration of God, which is by faith? What has God given the church to do? Uh, what's supposed to be furthered and improved in the life of the church that's not being produced by the speculation? Well, Paul tells us very clearly in verse 5. They produce mere speculation, but the goal of our instruction is not speculation. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is love from these things. The goal of our instruction is not speculation. What Paul and Timothy's teaching, the right use of the law, what that produces is love from what I like to call a pious inner life. And so that's point three on your outline. How do you guard your heart in doctrine? Well, keep true piety. That's the instruction for uh, the false teachers. We'll see that as we go on in, in verses six and seven. But to keep true piety, this has to be our, our focus as a church. As you read through the rest of the book of 1 Timothy, uh, you actually see Paul's instruction all bearing the marks of love. How do the shepherds love the sheep? He tells us. How do the sheep love the shepherds? He tells us. How do the sheep love one another? Uh, widows, men loving the rest of the church, women loving the rest of the church, and all the members loving one another, the rich loving those who are not in the church. He actually gives answers to how to love one another. And so that's the goal of essentially, if you wrapped all up into one, the goal of the Christian life, love. Right? The, the first two greatest commandments Jesus summarized as loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That was from the Old Testament. That, that's not new, right? To uh, love one another as Christ loved us, that's new. Because Christ wasn't always a man. And so to follow, be, the ability to follow in his example is new for the church, uh, which is what he, he tells the disciples in John 13. But love being the aim of the life of those who believe God, that's not new. And so we shouldn't be surprised that that's the goal of the New Testament doctrine. The doctrine taught by the apostles as well as the law. Now, love is the goal. And obviously, the church takes priority in that, as Paul spells out for the rest of the book, because he has primarily the church in view. Um, and he describes in chapter 3 the church as being God's household, God's family. And so just like your own family relationships take priority, you dads in the room don't think of the rest of the children in the church like your own kids. You don't treat them like your own children. Um, you might love them, but you don't discipline them. Uh, you don't provide for them 
because they're not your children. So your own children, your own family takes priority. It's the same way with God's household. He's the father and all of his children prioritize one another first, most. And then that same love and godliness that happens in the home obviously spills out in other places. But with love being the goal, you'll notice in verse 5 that it's not just any kind of love. Paul has a specific um, specific aim in mind or a specific source, specific sources in mind. So as we talk about embracing God's stewardship, sorry, I, I said keep true piety, wrong, wrong set of notes. As you talk about embracing God's stewardship, it aims at love and it's sourced in these three things, purity, goodness, and sincerity. Purity, goodness, and sincerity. In our day, it is a popular delusion to think that love can come from an impure life. Love cannot come from an impure life. Not true love, not godly love, not the, the love that God is aiming at. As you think about embracing God's stewardship, a part of your aiming at love is keeping a pure or a pious inner life, an inner life at the heart level where your thoughts, your desires, your motivations, your emotions, uh, even where your words originate, that inner life, keeping that pure, making sure that godliness takes place where nobody else can see. The things you think about in the privacy of your own heart, you must aim for godliness there. Not just to come to build, uh, come to Sunday services, go to small group, and have everybody else affirm what they see on men and women's nights at core questions. You're answering the core questions. I got to make sure that uh, everybody knows I'm doing okay when I answer the core questions. I can't let them think I'm, I think I'm perfect, so I have to mention some sin. But answer, answer the core questions. Give everyone the impression that they're getting, an, getting real insight into your life when they're not. That's not the goal. The goal is to be transparent, to be holy at the heart level. If the goal of all biblical instruction is love from a heart that's pure, a conscience that's good, and a faith that's sincere, if that's the goal of all biblical instruction, then you should conclude that you can't love anyone, especially other believers, the way that God intends if your inner life isn't holy. That's if whatever whatever love you're extending to others from wrong motivations, that's not the love that God's aiming after. That's not the love that he's aiming at. Whatever kindness and affection you're showing to your wife from wrong motivations without God's honor in mind 
That's not the kind of love and affection for your wife that God's aiming at. And on and on and on. You think of all the relationships in your life that aren't sourced out of, that don't come from holiness at the deepest part of you. That's not the kind of love that God's aiming at. Um, that's why the kind of love that the world talks about and calls love is not actually love. Um, a homosexual couple, that's not the love that God's aiming at. Whatever it is, it's not love, biblically defined. Um, a husband being motivated by his own comfort, and so he does whatever he can to please his wife. That's not the kind of love that God's aiming at. The husband who doesn't lead out of genuine biblical love because he just wants to please his wife. Uh, he idolizes domestic tranquility, right? Peace in the home at all costs. And so I'm not actually leading my wife and my children and helping them think rightly, right? Being out in front. This is what's biblical. This is where we're going. Charting a path forward for the family. And wife ends up leading, children end up having their way. That's not, whatever that is in the husband's life is not love, right, happening in the home. Love has to come from these three sources. And so it's sourced in purity, goodness, and sincerity. Just taking each one of these, the heart has to be pure. And we talked about, uh, you know, we've said what the heart is. This is everything that comes out of you, Jesus says, comes from the heart. Flip over to Mark chapter 7. And we'll see in Mark chapter 7, Jesus defining for the listening crowds what actually defiles someone. So in verse 20, Mark seven twenty, and he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murderers, or murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus being in a discussion about true defilement highlights these sins as what actually defile, not what you eat, not what goes into you. That's not what's truly defiling. Um, and if he was in a discussion about what's purifying, then it would be the inverse. What comes out of you is what determines your purity. Just like what comes out of you determines your defilement, what comes out of you determines your purity, your godliness. You can't be more godly than you are on the inside. Nobody is more godly than they are inwardly. Think about that. I mean, thankfully, we're not all in each other's heads. But you know what you think about, right? You know the sinful thoughts, the sinful desires and inclinations that you have in the privacy of your own mind. 
you're not holier than whatever results from those thoughts and the God honoring thoughts you have mixed. <laughs> right? We're in a mixed condition. So we're not only evil as we used to be prior to conversion, but being in a mixed condition, the true state of our godliness is the sum total of the best and worst of you. That's probably discouraging. Hopefully it's also encouraging. Um, because if you have any noble, any pure God-honoring thoughts or motivations at all, right? if you just serve your wife out of no self-interest but merely uh, please the Lord by pleasing my wife, serving for the sake of serving at cost to myself, if that's ever been a motivation of yours, then you're far better than you used to be. You never had the glory of God in mind prior to conversion. So aiming at the purity and piety of the inner life is what Paul has in view. Your love has to stem from that ultimately. So embracing God's stewardship uh, means aiming at love, being sourced in purity. The heart <clears throat> has to be purified. Uh, the conscience has to be uh, improved, made, made gooder. You have to have a good conscience. Uh, your conscience is the moral alarm that goes off in you, right? It tells you what is moral or what is not moral. Your conscience affirms or condemns your thoughts, actions, motivations. When they're good, a well-informed conscience will say good. When they're bad, a well-informed conscience will say bad. You have to have a, a good conscience, one that's informed with God's thoughts so that you know rightly what is you can discern what is right or wrong. <clears throat> um, if you have a conscience, or let's just talk about uh, what makes for a good conscience, right? You could ruin your conscience in a number of ways. You could ruin your conscience by not informing it with God's word. So that you don't really have clarity on what is right or wrong, what is God honoring or not. That's one way to ruin your conscience. Just simply let it, allowing it to remain ignorant of what God says. You could also ruin your conscience by running over your conscience every time it tells you that this is wrong. You know it's uh, wrong, for example to be lazy at work, to focus on other things, that you're stealing time from your employer. And when your conscience is convicting you, we should get to work right now. We should be diligent. Stop doing that. You ignore it and just keep doing what you wanna do, being lazy, stealing time. Hey, that 
that uh, that relationship that's enticing with that female coworker, uh, we shouldn't be talking to her. Stay away from her. Take your lunch break at a different time. Don't walk by her desk. Don't smile, right, or whatever, whatever it is. Your conscience is convicting you. This isn't appropriate. This is dangerous, and you ignore it. It's it's an alarm going off in your head, and you ignore it. What do you think is going to happen to your conscience if you continually ignore what it's warning you about? Eventually, it's going to stop talking to you. It's going to stop working right. Um, you'll just get used to ignoring your conscience and so you're training yourself to not listen to not listen to not listen and then you find yourself uh, down the path of sin and you look up and go how did I get here you were ignoring your conscience right so keeping a pure heart keeping a good conscience and also this love, this uh, stewardship of God is sourced in sincerity, a sincere faith. There are lots of ways to uh, cultivate sincerity. There are lots of ways to practice insincerity. When you like the other members of Grace Bible Church, you, you like being here, they're nice people, they're kind. Uh, when they get together, they eat a lot, that's fun. Whatever it is that you like about the church, um, you could hang around because you like the various activities and company of the church and not actually take to the biblical teaching. So you just appear to believe all the same things. You appear to be on the same page doctrinally. You're hearing the same things. And so it seems like we're all taking in the same doctrine, aiming at the same things, but not really. I have other motivations for being here that just make it seem like I'm one of you, that I'm unified. That's insincere. To be wrongly motivated, that's insincerity. Uh, you could be insincere by not being transparent about what's really going on in your life. Because, man, everybody else seems like their marriages are so polished and put together and their parenting is on point. And so I need to come. And even though it's crazy at home, my kids are out of control and I'm constantly bickering with my wife, I have to at least show up and look like that's not the case. That's insincerity. When you have an opportunity to confess sin, to give a friend a window into your life actually so that you can say, hey, here's what's happening. And yep. It, it might be worse than it actually seems, but it seems bad. I'm going to just be transparent and tell somebody wh where I'm at. To not do that is insincere. It's not a sincerity of faith. 
And so if we lack these things, purity of heart, goodness of conscience, sincerity of faith, that directly impacts our ability to love. And so if perhaps for no other motivation than the sake of the body, pursue holiness. You have to be holy if you're going to be a youthful member at Grace Bible Church. Um, the testimony of Grace Bible Church, which Jesus says in John 13, he told his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is the church's love for one another. One disciple's love to the other disciples that God has put in community it is primarily that that proves to the world that we are disciples of Jesus. So when people look into Grace Bible Church, your neighbors will know that you're disciples of Jesus by how you love the other people who don't even live in your neighborhood. But are members at Grace Bible Church. We moved last July into our new home in Ahwatukee. And before... This was a few days after we had moved in. Uh, sweet neighbors of ours gave us some housewarming gifts. And it was the first time that we had ever seen them. And one of the first things that Stephanie said is, man, you, you guys must have some good friends because you had so many people helping you move. And we did. It was the middle of July afternoon. <laughs> And we had a ton of people helping us move in. That was a, a great testimony to our neighbors. Um, later, same neighbors uh, asked Emily, is your husband a pastor? And she said, and she told him I was. And they said, man, we, we, we thought he might be because you guys have people over all the time coffee and hymn nights, uh, small group gatherings at the time, uh, just hosting friends. That's a testimony to the world, right? And so what makes us different, what the very things that we're pursuing in pursuing love for one another is a testimony to people who have no relationship to the church. Um, you, have to have, you have to pursue a pure inner life if you're going to love well, uh, love others well. And again, the ultimate goal is not just for the sake of loving one another, but this is God's reputation tied to the, the life of the church. He's, he's done that by design. If the men in this room, um, the other men at Grace Bible Church, don't keep a pure inner life, um, we will fail to love one another and God's reputation will uh, fall. God's reputation will be dishonored before a watching world. So for the glory of God, keep a pure inner life. Love the church from a pure inner life. You'll notice that this pure inner life is actually the way 
to avoid unsound doctrine. And this might be strange to consider, but if you asked, uh, if you considered, I think this was even a question on uh, last week's homework. Um, what's, what is one primary way to keep your doctrine pure? A primary way to keep your doctrine pure is to keep your life pure because your doctrine follows your heart. That's what Paul tells us in verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, what's the these things? Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. <clears throat> That's the these things. Good job. For some men straying from these things, the three things we just mentioned, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Some men straying from these things have turned aside. The fruitless discussion is a reference again to the false teaching. They've been teaching error that produces just speculation in the church. How in the world did they start to be enticed and begin to promote these wrong ideas, these wrong doctrines, these myths, these endless genealogies? Well, they started to teach those things because they strayed from these things. A pious inner life. Your doctrine depends on your heart. And where the heart is defiled, the doctrine has no hope. For some men, straying from these things, that's the, they had an active role. They played an active, proactive role in leaving the pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. They did that. No one did that to them, right? Straying from these things. They didn't pay attention to their inner life and then translated literally were turned aside to fruitless discussion. Were turned. That's the, the passive voice. So in a, a almost passive sense, they became false teachers. Because of the impurity in the inner life, they were turned. Now, obviously, it was their fault that they turned aside to fruitless discussion. But I think Paul, uh, in the original, gives the passive voice as if to say it was their refusal or failure at the heart level that the, left them with the only other option, which was to turn aside to fruitless discussion and false teaching. It's almost like if you let your heart go and if you don't guard your heart, then the only, to no effort of your own, you will drift away into false teaching into wrong doctrine. 
How could you not? Right? Everything in the Bible is intended, as Paul goes on to say, even in the Old Testament, to sanctify the life. If you're committed to something that's not holy at, at the heart level, if you like those forbidden thoughts, if you like those dangerous relationships and practices that God page after page after page in the Bible from cover to cover tells you you can't have, but you're committed to it at the heart level, what do you think you're going to teach? You're not going to teach that God forbids the very things you love. And so you're going to be enticed by things that are biblical. You're going to not give your attention to what God actually says, because, man, every time I read that, that passage, it indicts me. It reminds me that I'm a sinner. And I don't, I don't want to hear that again. So I'm going to become fascinated with other ideas that don't indict me. They don't threaten me having my pet sins. You have to not be committed in the heart to those sins so that your teaching is preserved or your doctrine is kept pure. Does that make sense? Do you see the relationship between those two things? Even as you think about um, there's so much information available to us just at the tip of our fingers. Um, we can listen to any Bible teacher basically in the world. Are you attracted to other teaching? Is it enticing to you to hear new ideas when it comes to doctrine? Do you have an appetite for that kind of stuff? That's not primarily an issue of your doctrine. That's a heart issue. That's a character issue if you're enticed by that. And the way to help men, help people who are enticed by unbiblical ideas, who have an appetite for that, is actually to aim at the, the conscience, to aim at the, the heart. Um, there was a man in our church, actually, who um, some years ago, it came out that because uh, the, the elders got an email from his wife that this man had been studying polygamy for years and pressuring his wife to join him in a polygamous relationship or to allow him to introduce other wives into uh, the marriage. That's, that's strange teaching, right? You're hearing that like, yeah, that's bizarre. That's clearly sin. Um, well, in trying to shepherd this individual, uh, it had, we became aware that he had not been sincere in faith. He had kept these things that he was studying secret. Hey, what are you reading, man? And he, you know, oh, I'm reading the same things you're reading. And he was. 
but he didn't say he was also reading Christian scholars who had defended his polygamous position and people who had taken a position on the law that tried to make polygamy godly. I mean, you read this passage and essentially this is, this was this guy's life. Where we started in our shepherding with him because now he had two years, several books. Um, there's a whole underground movement uh, in, in the church currently where people are actually defending polygamy. And he's got lots of research and all of his arguments, right, ready to defend polygamy. And so he wants to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the elders so that he can have a platform at, at our church for his aberrant teaching. And on the authority of this passage, we said, we're not even going there. We're not interested in, you know, lining up our arguments side by side to see which one's biblical. Scripture clearly condemns, even in this book, in chapter three, as the elder qualifications are laid out, scripture clearly condemns being anything other than a one woman man as ungodly. And so we're going to show you why you've even taken that position. Why that even seems plausible is because you're perverted at the heart level. Okay. That has to be the aim. People who are embracing ungodliness, uh, even in the, in the, at the level of their doctrine, the problem isn't their doctrine primarily. The problem is that they've embraced that because they've embraced ungodliness at the heart level. And the same thing goes for us. Uh, you will veer in your doctrine if you don't keep your life pure. Two other uh, strategies are given uh, in, verse, in verse 7. It says that these men are wanting to be teachers, wanting to be teachers of the law. They have strong cravings for a platform, for uh, being teachers, and, and it's not tempered. So they should temper strong desires. The desire they have to be teachers are unrestrained and they need to be tempered so that they can actually take the time to number five gain doctrinal clarity um, as you think about tempering strong desires um, a church like ours that is uh, that takes the charge to train men seriously is attractive to men who want to be trained and we praise God for that we want that to be attractive to people who have the desire to shepherd. Those desires, though, for those, uh, those desires for the good office and the noble task of shepherding ought to be tempered. Be patient. Don't demand a platform. Don't be ambitious. Take time to purify motives if you desire the office of teacher, temper strong desires. And in principle, 
tempering strong desires? Uh, what does that what does that demonstrate when someone is willing to restrain desires and not have those desires immediately? It demonstrates a patience. It demonstrates self control. It demonstrates a trust in the Lord and a distrust of my my own desires, what I think might be best for me now. Right? Extend that principle that here applies specifically to shepherding to other things. Right? Want a new house, want a better house, want a new car, want a better job. Right? To temper those things and trust the Lord in the moment until he gives what might be a good desire. That also is a good way to train yourself to guard your heart, to be able to temper strong desires. And then finally, gain doctrinal clarity. Gain doctrinal clarity. These men who were teaching error in Ephesus wanted to be teachers of the law, Paul says in verse 7, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or they also do not understand the matters about which they make confident assertions. They were ignorant. And that's a terrible quality to have in a teacher. They didn't, they didn't know what they were talking about. And they were confident about it. They were confident in their ignorance. Um, confidence is no... Uh, Having confidence doesn't make your doctrine right. It doesn't justify your position, how strongly you can make a case in your tone, in your disposition. They were confident, but they were ignorant. And worse than being ignorant is being confident in your ignorance. But these men were. Uh, this should be an encouragement to us that as certainly as you ought to keep a close eye right, with all vigilance, guard your heart, you must also aim at doctrinal clarity. So think about the unanswered questions in your mind. You know God's word has answers to them, but you haven't embarked upon a serious pursuit to discover those answers. You should. And that eventually will take a lifetime of study. But the point is, are you aiming at, are you pursuing doctrinal clarity? You don't have your, your eschatology sorted out yet? Have you started trying? Right. Um, that might mean as you go through your Bible reading plan, you just make a note, catalog, every forward-looking verse. That's a really excellent practice, by the way. You will be uh, premillennial in your eschatological views if you do that before you leave the book of Genesis. It's true. Um, that might mean picking up Matt Wehmeyer's book on Revelation or his critique of the his of amillennialism's two age model. Right, those are excellent eschatological uh, resources. Or Michael Vlock's the uh, the book on the kingdom. 
Are you unclear about parenting? Read Proverbs. Mark down every single proverb that talks about parenting. Do you need improvement in your marriage? Visit every passage in Proverbs about marriage. Reread Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. Gain clarity on those things. In whatever other area of doctrine you realize, there's a weakness here. I know I need to get around to that. Make a plan. Gaining doctrinal clarity is going to help you keep your heart because all scripture is profitable for these things. The law is intended, as Paul says, that we read, to sanctify the the life. And if you gain doctrinal clarity so that you can live in light of all of the implications for your life, right? Even eschatology that has tremendous implications for holy living. If you become convinced that Christ will reign on earth, that you don't know the day or the hour that he's going to come and rescue his church from coming wrath, that's going to affect your urgency in evangelism, your purity of life, that's going to affect uh, your the vigorousness with which you try and press into the kingdom. That's going to be really helpful. And it's going to impact your counseling of one another. It's going to make you better able to counsel others as you know, as you discover the implications of eschatology on your encouragement to other believers. So they're just not to, 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 to be at peace, to be comfortable with not having or knowing what scripture says about this or that doctrine. Realize that it impacts your own life, your ability to love others. If you gain doctrinal clarity, you become a better lover of others. Any questions as we uh, wrap up for, for small groups? Yep, so the question is about uh, what I mentioned would be a good strategy for gaining clarity, specifically when it comes to eschatology or some of these other things. Yeah, so um, specifically with Proverbs, uh, Proverbs addresses, from what I can tell, every single area of life. So if you had a question about what the Bible said about fill in the blank, some area of life, money, wealth, poverty, work, parenting, marriage, anything, you could just, if you wanted to get a quick handle on what scripture taught about that, you could read one chapter of Proverbs a day, finish in a month, and if you just cataloged each verse that talked about that topic, that would be a simple path, uh, a quick path to walking away with sort of a comprehensive, somewhat comprehensive understanding of that subject, right? Um, maybe not baptism, but pretty much everything else, you know, the, 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 the Proverbs are going to talk about it. Um, I've done that with several things. You know, what does Proverbs say about work? What does Proverbs say about the heart? So every passage about work, 
just you can you can write out the verse you can write down the um, the reference you can write out the principle a man must work work is important lazy people don't work right or whatever whatever it is and then at the end you'd have a list of what the what the proverb said about that thing um, in Genesis uh, as a, a project in a class in seminary I read the Torah and just wrote down uh, I made a list of every forward looking reference anything that said this will happen in the future I just wrote it down and so I thought that would be a short project it was not that list is huge um, every single forward-looking promise of God. And I'm convinced that Genesis alone is enough to uh, require what we call premillennialism, right? Um, yeah, Jesus is going to reign. God himself will reign on the earth in physical form, with the land of Canaan, primarily from the land of Canaan, as he gives that land to uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. Uh, and all of God's promises, I think you look through the rest of scripture, uh, you kind of get in seed form in Genesis, those things being necessary before God wraps up his redemptive plan. So... And you could just do that with, with really anything, just writing down and cataloging what the Bible says about, about anything. And you've got the rest of your life to do that. So every year, pick a new theme or every book, notice what's repeated. All right. Thank you, men.